You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Have you ever wondered who the Mary was from Bloody Mary? If the Loch Ness Monster was real or if Ouija boards actually worked? On each episode of the family-friendly Unspookable, we look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your podcasts. I feel like who art ed? Who art ed? Mr. Wood art ed me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and today we're going to be looking at Jackson Pollock. If you want to see an image of the work discussed in this episode, just like every episode, I put out episode-specific cover art for those who listen on Amazon Music, Spotify, Good Pods, or anywhere else that supports that feature. In reviewing my research for this episode, I was reminded of just how polarizing a figure Jackson Pollock is. He's best known for his innovation with the drip painting method. And while on some level these paintings seem active and fun, the jaw-dropping prices that these pieces will fetch at auction on some level just seems unfair When you consider how many artists spend their whole lives working and studying to perfect their craft, and Jackson Pollock just laid a canvas on the floor of his barn and spilled paint on it. In August 1973, Australia was starting its National Gallery. The first director of the museum bought Number 11, also referred to as Blue Poles, by Pollock for $2 million. It was a record for an American painting at the time, and it was a huge scandal in Australia. Much of the public thought it was a waste. They felt like their government officials were being scammed by some dodgy New York art dealers. That same year, a Rembrandt sold for the same price, $2 million. While everyone could see the value of a Rembrandt, a Pollock? A lot of people just didn't see it. I think it's worth noting that while Jackson Pollock's paintings may get these massive auction prices today, that's not what he was selling his paintings for during his lifetime. Blue Poles, which the Australian government paid $2 million for in 1973, sold for $6,000 when Pollock made it. I think while millions of dollars for a drip painting seemed scandalous and It's said to be the painting that almost brought down a government. Jackson Pollock was not some lazy guy who just carelessly tossed paint around. He studied and worked for years to figure out how to carelessly toss and splatter that paint. He studied at the Art Students League of New York. He learned from great artists like Thomas Hart Benton. Pollock's development largely mirrors the development of modern art movements in the early 20th century. He started off making work that was more figurative and kind of expressive, then he dabbled in sort of cubist techniques, he was learning from the surrealists, he was reading about psychology, and he brought all of that together, getting looser and looser and more and more abstract, until his big breakthrough came with these massive drip paintings, the all-over compositions that 
really only he was doing. Well, him and like Janet Sobel, who did it a year earlier. And if you want to learn more about her, check out my other episode. I'll link it in the show notes. I think to really understand and appreciate Jackson Pollock, you need to put him in a historical context. In the mid-20th century, there was a sense that America and New York could eclipse Paris as the center of the art world and the avant-garde. The difficulty was, of course, what could be done to surpass figures like Picasso? There was a buzz of opportunity for America to step up on the world stage as so many great artists had fled the strife in Europe, but nobody could quite put their finger on what would be the next frontier to explore in the art world. As Willem de Kooning said, Pollock broke the ice. It's not that he was the first person to drip paint. I would say, arguably, his work is actually just an echo of the very first paintings we saw on cave walls. Some of the earliest paintings were created by prehistoric people chewing up organic materials, putting their hand on the wall of a cave, and spitting the pigment so that it would surround the hand and leave a silhouette marking their place and their movements. Jackson Pollock's work, in some ways, carries on that tradition. He's getting at something that is timeless and in some ways universal by focusing on the act of painting. When we look at his drip paintings, it's not just about the surface qualities of the canvas. We see these drips and splatters that trace his choreographed movements around that space. It's not just a painting. It's a recording of his performance. As I alluded to earlier, there are a lot of people who might look at his works and say, fine, the splatters, I get the movement, the innovation, but the pricing feels unfair for something that, let's face it, anyone could do. Today, we see Jackson Pollock's works go up for auctions and sell for tens of millions of dollars. In 2006, number five by Pollock sold for $140 million, making it the most expensive painting ever at that time. While the record has since been broken, I think it's interesting to think how Jackson Pollock's paintings today sell for so much money, but he spent most of his life actually in poverty. You might say the Pollock family was so poor, they didn't even own their name. Jackson Pollock, his actual first name was Paul, He was the son of Leroy McCoy Pollock. Leroy basically went to work on the neighbor's farm when he was a child after his parents passed away. The neighbors took Leroy in, and he adopted their surname of Pollock. While Jackson was growing up, he struggled quite a bit in school. He was expelled from two different high schools and bounced around doing odd jobs. For a while, he worked as a custodian in an elementary school where his brother taught. In the 1930s, in the grips of the Great Depression, he was known to have to steal food just to survive. By the 1940s, things were starting to look up for Pollock. While he was deemed unfit for military service because of his poor physical and mental health, from 1938 to 1942, he worked for the WPA Federal Arts Project. In 1943, his big break came when he signed a contract with Peggy Guggenheim. Guggenheim's support for the arts went well beyond simply buying the occasional piece or putting things up in a gallery. 
1941, Guggenheim set sail for France with quite possibly the ultimate surrealist collection. Hidden among the crates of artworks, she brought an actual artist, Max Ernst, out of Nazi-occupied territory. It was Guggenheim's endorsement that helped to reframe Pollock from an unstable, struggling artist to a tortured genius and visionary American icon. In some ways, his rags-to-riches story fits the mythos of the American dream and social mobility, particularly if you don't look too closely and gloss over the way he seems to have been tremendously self-destructive and kind of a jerk. The story of Pollock's rise, though, seems poetic. While critics have derided his drip-painting method as complete garbage that anyone could create, I think in some ways, that's part of the magic of it. That anyone could create it. Pollock broke art down to its fundamental elements, exploring lines, colors, textures, in a way that anybody could understand. Anybody could see themselves creating it, and anybody could see what they want in it. Pollock actually stopped naming his paintings and began simply numbering them because he was getting towards something that was completely new and different for the time. Yes, there had been abstract art before that, but Picasso famously said, you must always start with something and then remove all traces of reality. Jackson Pollock was saying, let paint be paint. He was getting into that non-objective territory where it's not based on anything other than the raw emotion and the elements laid bare on the canvas. Of course, there is something kind of funny and ironic about the fact that the universality is the point of this work, and yet its value is tied so specifically to the one individual who dripped and splattered those paints. In 1991, a woman, Terry Horton, went to a thrift shop, and she saw a canvas she said was kind of ugly, to be honest. It was covered in drips and splatters, but it was only $5. So she bought it. Turns out she's looking at quite possibly the greatest return on investment in the history of the world, as that $5 painting is worth about $50 million. Because those weren't just any drips and splatters. They were Jackson Pollock's. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted, part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you found this tolerable, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week on social media at Who Arted Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And of course, on the website, whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.